All right, so we come to chapter 2 of Hebrews. And as we do so, we are uh, back in a text that we started last week. We began uh, verses 5 through 9 last Sunday morning. We covered a great deal of that text. We want to finish that part of it up today. As we do so, I want you to think about what we mentioned. There are three major sections so far we have walked through in this journey through Hebrews. First of all, the exordium at the beginning of chapter 1, those first four verses that declare these glories of Christ and make clear that there is something unique about Christ. There is none like Him. Now, He did become like His brethren, but in a very real way that there is something that can be said of Him that can be said of no one else. He is the God-man, fully God and fully man. And we see that in that exordium. He is the one through whom all things were made, the heir of all things, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of His person. Yet He is the one who stepped into time and by Himself purged our sins and then was exalted to the right hand of the Father, uh, to the majesty on high, having become the author says, so much greater than the angels as he has by inheritance received a more excellent name than them, than the angels. Front of which angel did he ever say, you are my son, today I've begotten you. So again, the logic is clear. Christ is unique. He is glorious. There are none like him. And then we walk through the rest of chapter 1, verses 5 through 14, which speak of Christ in comparison to the angels. And again, there really isn't much of a comparison. He is more glorious. He is greater He is exalted above the angels. And we walk through one of those verses, for unto which angel did he ever call a son? It says, he said that of this one, the Messiah, he would say, he is my son, right? I am his father. He also said uh, many other things in that text, that he is eternal, that he is the creator. All through the end of that chapter, Christ is greater than the angels. And we say, well, what is the purpose of all that? And we come to it in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, which is our third section, which is this exhortation. Be careful. Beware. Give the more earnest heed to the things that you've heard, lest you drift away. Lest we drift away. And there's a warning there not to neglect so great a salvation. And it's bringing this argument of the angels uh, together, if you will. Because we know that chapter 1 begins with an argument that Christ is greater than the prophets of old because He is God's own Son who is speaking to us in these final days, in the eschaton. And yet as we come to the beginning of chapter 2, it explains to us the argument of the angels. It says that if there were consequences for for violating or ignoring or disobeying a covenant that was mediated by angels... We walk through that, how the Old Testament doesn't speak much on that, but the New Testament does. Paul mentions that the Old Testament was mediated by uh, covenants, and uh, by uh, angels, and he also, uh, Stephen mentions that in Acts. He says, if that had consequences for neglecting it, how much more serious will the consequences be for those who ignore the covenant mediated by God's own Son? One mediated by servants, angels on the heavenly side, Moses on the human side, But this covenant mediated by one, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, God's own Son. If Christ is greater than the angels, if Christ is greater than Moses, he'll come back to that. Then the covenant he mediates must necessarily be greater than the one that was mediated by angels and Moses. 
And if that is the case, you better listen to what is said. Heed, take heed, more careful heed of what you've been taught. So we went through all of that. We looked at it and uh, we mentioned that as we came to verse 5 last Sunday, it begins to talk about the world to come that, of which the author is speaking and how it's not been put under the administration of angels. And we say, well, how does that flow out of verses 1 through 4? And we mentioned it actually more naturally flows out of the end of chapter 1. And that's led some pretty important people in the history of the church, John Brown and, and others, to say, well, 1 through 4 is a digression. And a preacher's exhortation to say, listen, don't miss this moment to recognize the importance of this. Maybe it is. But if it is, it's a strange digression because it contains the summation of the argument of chapter 1. It would be one of the only summations that is a digression that you'd ever find. But it would be at home in Hebrews, which is itself a paradoxical letter. Because it says that God came into the world, took on flesh, and died. That's hard to understand. Except that we realize that there is a mystery to what is happening here we're going to look at a little bit more today. So again, as we began into this uh, verse 5 last Sunday and began into this new section, which is really continuing, if you will, the exposition of Old Testament verses found in chapter 1 that prove that Christ is greater than the angels, listen to what it says. For He has not put the world to come, of which we speak, in subjection to angels. But one testified in a certain place, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, and set him over the work of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death. For everyone. Now, last week we tried to focus on verses 5 through 8 in this. Today we're going to focus on verse 9. But I want to remind you really quick of what the argument is here. Continuous argument of Christ being of greater dignity, of greater authority, just greater than the angels. He says, To which angel did he ever say he was going to put the world to come, the world of which we are speaking, the eschaton, the eschatological age, under the authority of angels? The answer is, he never said it anywhere. We spoke last week about some of the Jewish background where they might have anticipated that maybe the angels were administering uh, the eschaton. But here he says, no, it is not to him. For have you not heard it testified by someone in some place? We spoke again. I think he knows exactly who this is. It's David in Psalm 8. I think he knows exactly. He's using some rhetorical flourish here to make a point. Uh, Didn't someone once say that man Though low, if it would seem, in the glory of creation is crowned with honor and glory by God. Was given dominion, authority by God in creation. We certainly read that in Genesis, don't don't we? That man, Adam, was put as the steward of the garden, the caretaker. Uh, All of it put under him. He had the authority to name the angels. He was God's minister, if you will, in the garden. And of course... All that is being spoken of before the fall and the consequential curse. And all of that is, of course, marred. And David is looking back and saying, that was what you were doing, God. And yet I don't think David is simply looking backward, is he? 
because he recognizes that what was marred by the first Adam will be fixed and made complete by the last Adam. Just as in a man this occurred, that this honoring and glory was marred, that uh, our authority, if you will, over creation fell, it will be reestablished in the last Adam who will one day come. I don't know how much David foresaw this. He certainly foresaw some inspired by the Spirit. And we spoke how Psalm 8 is very much parallel to Psalm 110. Because here it says, You have put him, man, over the works of your hand and have put all things in subjection under your feet. How could David not recognize that he wrote another Psalm, 110, that says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put everything under you as a footstool. Again, directly parallel text. And we would be mindful that Psalm 110 speaks of Jesus. And so Psalm 2 is as well. And we don't have to wonder about that for very long. Because who is the one who was made a little lower than the angels and then crowned with glory and honor? Well, verse 9 he says, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor. So there you go. There's the interpretation. The author says Psalm 8 was about Jesus. It was about Adam, yes. But it was ultimately looking forward in hope to the one who would come and renew uh, what God had always intended. That he would restore what was lost in Adam. And so we see that here. And so as we think about this ninth verse, which is our focus today, I want us to think about three points given to us in this verse. First of all, the humiliation of Christ. Second of all, the exaltation of Christ. And third, and finally, very quick, the mission of Christ. So beginning first with this idea of the humiliation of Christ, what do we mean when we say this? Well, we simply mean that Christ is eternally God. This is the argument of Hebrews. Kind of the the paradox or irony of the argument of Hebrews is the one we're speaking of is God. And the one of whom we are speaking is man. And this incredible mystery of how that all has happened and works together is what we're exploring in this text. But the author of Hebrews says, it is only this one who could redeem us from our sins. Only Jesus. No one else. And He can do it because He is the God-man. This is not an incidental doctrine. This is an essential doctrine. If Christ is not fully God and fully man, He cannot do this work for which He came into the world. So my friends, in an age that tries to downplay the importance of things like the incarnation, the virgin birth of Christ, this author would tell you, you've got nothing without them. You've got nothing without them. You've got no living hope without them because Christ cannot be who it was necessary for Him to be without them. And we'll see a little taste of that today. So again, as we talked about Psalm 8, we saw that David was looking backward at what was true of Uh, humanity prior to the fall of man, but he's also looking forward to what will be true once more in Christ Jesus. As he would have known him, his greater son, the the messianic king who was to come. And so he would reestablish the truth, and we spoke about that a moment ago. So this text says that of this messianic king, it can be said that all things are placed under his feet. Now again, if we want to know how literally to take that, verse 8 quoting from Psalm 8, says, You have put all things in subjection under His feet. And then the author goes on to explain that to us in saying, 
For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. There is nothing in the created order that is not now under the authority of Christ. Nothing. Now Paul, when he describes this, he says, except the one who sent him, right? He says, God the Father is not under him in, in this sense. But he says, all the created order here is under the authority of Christ. Is under the authority of Christ. Nothing has been left outside of that order such that there's a created thing that is not under his authority. So we start there. That's important. All things placed under his feet. Now we might ask, how is that possible? How did that occur? How was that accomplished? Well, the text tells us. In fact, this text tells us. It's complicated. Hebrews is going to unpack it over many verses to come. So we're not going to have the fullness of the argument today, but we're going to get kind of a summation of it and a, and a look at it, a glimpse at it. And so what the beginning of the argument is, is that it's his incarnation. How was it accomplished? This is key to biblical theology. It is accomplished because God became a man. God became a man. That is how it is accomplished. And so in God's perfect wisdom, he chose to do a great work through his son, who, though fully God, never ceasing to be God, took on flesh and became a human being. We often say, theologically, he took on a human nature, added it to his divine nature, did not cease to have a divine nature, did not cease to be God, but added to it. When we say that God does not change in his divinity, he has never changed. He added to that a human nature, a human nature. And so that is an astounding thing to behold and to think about. He became like his brothers. He took on humanity, becoming a man, and he too was made lower than the angels. Now we spoke about that last week, this image of humanity being lower uh, than the angels. Christ, eternally God, became a man, and in that way, in his humanity, became lower than the angels for a time. Now, my friends, all that is staggering to think about, to behold, to contemplate. But in his taking on humanity, he came for a purpose. He came for a purpose. And if you think about it for a minute, he came on a mission that involved humiliation. In fact, his coming into the world itself is humiliation. It's a lowering of himself, if you will, to take on humanity, to become a man. Think of what is said of him in his incarnate mission that would not be said of him eternally before that in heaven. He got tired. He got hungry. All the frailties that human beings had, Christ had as a man. How do we know that? We have confessed for 2,000 years that he who was truly God truly became man. This isn't some fiction. He became a man. He had a body. You know, some of the early church heresies attacked on these very points, didn't they? Well, he had no real physical body. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. The author of Hebrews says he was tempted and tried as we are, and yet without sinning. My friends, we quote that a lot, but the author of Hebrews says, if you understand what that means, you understand it was necessary for him to complete the work he came to complete. For he could not be the perfect high priest of God if he wasn't tempted and tried in all ways as we are, and yet remained sinless. If he had sinned, he could not be the perfect spotless atonement for our sin. But if he wasn't tempted and tried in all ways as we are, if he did not suffer, he could not be a faithful high priest to us, for he could not be made like his brethren. He could not, 
in a way, understand us in this ministerial sense. That is the point Hebrews will make. It was necessary that Christ became a man to fulfill this mission that only a God-man could fulfill. Now, the humiliation is more than just coming into the world, lowering himself. He was put under the law. Now, just think about that for a minute. That's what Paul says in Galatians 4.4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, we could go on to redeem those under the law, that they might have the adoption of sons. But again, think about that for a minute. He came into the world, born of a woman, born under the law. What does that mean? He must keep the law. Now, God is not going to violate His own law anyway, but it was necessary. If He had violated the law, could He be as a sinner the spotless Lamb of God? Takes away the sins of the world. No, He can't. So again, it is necessary that He be placed under the law, that He is the true Israelite, that He is the one who fulfills the law. And so we see all of this. And so as all men did, he lived under the law perfectly. He did all things the law required of him. The scriptures point that out to us throughout the Gospels, that he did all the things that were required of him in the law. He suffered in all the ordinary ways we do. Fatigue, hunger, pain, all those things. But he was still truly God. We want to emphasize that he never ceased to be God at any any time during that. But we also want to recognize he was fully and truly human and all that that entails. Now, when you think about this, there's something important that comes through. One of the things that he shares with us is he suffered. Hebrews offers this up to us again and again and again. Christ suffered. Christ suffered. Christ suffered. Suffering was a huge part of his story. In fact, Hebrews 5.8 says that he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And my friends, if you want to struggle theologically, think about that. Jesus learned something by his suffering. Now this is something that absolutely cannot be said of him in his divinity pre-incarnate, can it? He didn't learn anything. But in his humanity, it's saying there is something that he learned in this incarnate ministerial role that he gained from his suffering that makes him a faithful high priest of God, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we do it to be cautious with these things because you can inadvertently say something that uh, crosses a line into heresy, but it is important to recognize what the text says. Jesus learned obedience by the things that he suffered. It is told to us in the text. It was necessary for him to suffer. And by the way, there are many places we're going to see as we walk through Hebrews that speak of the necessity of his suffering. In fact, if we were to go just beyond today's boundaries, notice what it says. Verse 10, For it was fitting for him, this is meaning the Father, for whom all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. In other words, Christ cannot have the telos, the end of his mission, if he doesn't suffer. On the cross, certainly. But in many other ways before that. He ministers on my behalf. I haven't yet gone to a cross. But we all suffer, don't we? Through life. He is our faithful high priest. He too has suffered in all the ways that we have. And therefore he is our representative, our mediator, our faithful high priest. And so again, 
Jesus suffered humiliation in various ways, and then it led to the ultimate humiliation, the ultimate paradox, if you will, that Christ, the second person of the eternal trinity, the glorious God, died upon the tree. Now, that's something that can be said of his humanity only. But you can't separate his humanity. This is a very difficult thing to behold. We can distinguish, but we cannot separate. It says that Christ ultimately went to the cross and he died for our sins. Now, if we were to turn to Philippians, Paul says something very similar about this. He says, of course, this famous text, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. In other words, if I claim to be equal with God, that is robbing God of his glory. It's also not accurate or true. But it was not robbery for Jesus to say it, because he himself was God. But he made himself of no reputation. How did he do that? The very way we're talking about here. In humiliation, in in coming into this world and becoming a man lower than his glorious state as God. It says that he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. In other words, what what Paul is arguing is he looked like us. He was like us in every way. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. What's Paul saying there? I mean, he's saying it very explicitly, isn't he? He humbled himself. He suffered even this death. And even amongst death, he suffered in this way the death of the cross. The most horrendous way. It's what the ancients believed. There was no worse way to die than on the cross. And of course, we know that the Old Testament gives us to unpack that cursed is anyone who dies upon the tree. Christ took our curse upon himself. And so again, all of this is said to us, he even suffered humiliation in this way. He died, even died the death of the cross. And what this text is telling us is the humiliation and suffering of Christ was not incidental to the mission, but essential for the mission. And Psalm 8 shows us that. He must be made lower than the angels for a time, then crowned with glory and honor. This text tells us in that exact order that's what happened. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor. Now, he had to do this. To restore what was lost in Adam, he must suffer as we do to redeem us as a people and act as our perfect high priest. Now that brings us to our second point, the exaltation of Christ, because we don't want to miss that the verse doesn't end with his death. It doesn't end with his suffering. Yes, it says he was made lower than the angels. Yes, he was humiliated in that sense. He came into the world voluntarily took on flesh, put himself under the law, suffered in all ways as we do, tempted and tried as we are. And yes, he even went to the cross, became a curse for us, took our debt upon himself, took our sin upon himself, though he was sinless. He suffered and he died a real death. I always love in the um, Heidelberg Catechism, it asks the question, why was he buried? The answer, very simple and elegant, to show that he died, that he truly died. (laughs) You know, that's true. He was put in a grave. His body was placed in a grave because he truly died. His body was dead. The early church fathers used to say, it's in the Apostles' Creed, that he descended to the dead, that his 
His spirit went to the place of the dead. That there he preached that he had been victorious over sin and death and led captivity captive. My friends, all of that is true. Now that would actually be part of his exaltation, the earliest stages of his exaltation. But again, we see clearly his exaltation in the empty tomb. Death could not hold him. He could not hold him. Christ arose to the glory of God the Father. Notice it tells us this, uh, that he was that he suffered and that he died, and yet he was crowned with glory and honor. Chapter 1 makes this argument, doesn't it? Where is Christ now, the author of Hebrews is more or less asking you. He's seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is ruling and reigning as our king priest over all his people. Now, of course, we know that he was in the ascension, taken up to be his father and enthroned in all these various things that we'll be looking at as we continue through Hebrews. But we need to recognize that he has been crowned with honor and glory. And that was a testimony of chapter 1. First suffering, then exaltation. Where do we see that? Go back to verses 3 and 4. Right? This one who by himself, in his own body, purged our sins, then sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much greater than the angels as he has by inheritance received a more excellent name than them. Notice, the one who is eternally God and eternally Son becomes greater than the angels now in this sense, in his messianic sense, once he's completed his work. Now he can sit down as the messianic son. Now he rules and reigns. Again, you don't see that language. It's there. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. We're going to see it again in just a moment. So again, he triumphs over the grave, triumphs over death, continues to be exalted to the right hand of the Father. So So the point here is that suffering must give way to glory and exaltation. The grave could not hold him. He was God. He was sinless. He must take the keys of Hades and leave it. Be victorious. He must ascend to the right hand of his father. He is the sinless messianic king. Now that is the argument if we were to turn back again to Philippians, isn't it? I conveniently left off right before the key verses so we could come back to it now. Listen to it again. But he made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, meaning because of this, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things on earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you recognize the way Paul makes that argument? Because he was obedient to death, even the death of the cross, now God has highly exalted him. Now God has highly exalted him. The one who is eternally exalted. But in this sense, in his humanity, in his messianic role, he is now highly exalted that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he alone is Lord. My friends, that gives you the same message. It's because of his suffering that he is now exalted. Two weeks ago, uh, our missionary friend Paul Miller was here and he shared with us from Revelation 
chapter 5, verses 8 through 10, and I want you to listen to it again and see if it doesn't say the exact same thing. The elders are gathered around the throne, and it says this, Now, when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. Christ alone. Paul went through that, didn't he? Christ alone is worthy. Only Christ. Is there no one who can take the scroll and break its seals? John's crying. He's weeping. No one can do it. They say there is one. There is one. And Christ emerges. And they cry out, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. For or because... Why are you worthy? Why are you worthy? For you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign upon the earth. Now there's a lot of good news there. (laughs) A whole lot of good news there, which we'll be unpacking over time. But Why are all things placed under his feet as the messianic king, the son in this sense? And this is complicated because the author of Hebrews speaks of son in two different ways. He is eternally the only begotten son of the father. Speaks of him that way. The son before he ever stepped into this world. Of equal dignity to the father. But spoken of as the Son, and yet also He is the Son in this sense, something that He became. If you remember in chapter 1, turn back there just for a second and see the logic of the passage. Having become so much better than the angels, that He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. What is that name? Well, you read the very next verse. It doesn't make sense to us in a sense that the name He's received is Son, but it's clearly the intention of the author because He says, For unto which angel... Did he ever say, you are my son? In other words, he answers his own question. What is the title he received? Well, who else could have received it? No one else has ever been called son. And yet this is a title he received at his exaltation. At his exaltation. Now, my friends, there's a lot to unpack here, and we're going to be doing it over a long haul. But I want you to just see a glimpse of it today. Christ is the messianic king worthy of ruling and reigning, worthy of being the high priest of his people because he suffered, because he died, because he was slain, because he redeemed the people by his blood and has been highly exalted the right hand of God on high. That itself has a whole lot of imagery that we don't have time to get into today, but we will soon. So I want to close here with our third point, the mission of Christ. The author doesn't leave us to wonder why all this happened. We've been speaking of it already, but look at the end of verse 9. He was made lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Christ came on a mission of redemption. A mission of redemption. By the grace of God. We had no right to ask him to do it. He had no obligation to do it. That's what grace means. He didn't owe us anything. He didn't owe us anything. We had no way to prevail against Him. We were sinners fallen in sin. In Adam, yes, Paul makes that clear. In Romans, we 
are a fallen people in Adam. But none of us can say, well, if it weren't for Adam, I'd have salvation. Because which one of us is without sin? We all are sinners. And yet this text tells us by the grace of God, Christ entered the world on this mission to suffer and to die and to be exalted and glorified that He might redeem His people. My friends, He came on a mission of salvation. And this is all throughout what Hebrews is going to argue about, why He became a man and why He's now exalted. He did it to redeem sinners. He came into the world for this purpose. One of the early church fathers says, He who always was became what He had not been, that He might redeem His people from their sin. My friends, when you look at at all of this, this is the argument of Hebrews. The argument of Hebrews is really something like an epistle of sonship. Christ is the Son pictured in the Old Testament. It's in Him and Him alone that we might be redeemed. And I'm going to lay out to you bit by bit how that is. Through Old Testament Scripture after Old Testament Scripture and rightfully interpreting them, and you will see Jesus and Him alone is the Son that was promised. The fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant, the Son who would come, who would be greater than David, David's Lord, as David calls Him in Psalm 110. The Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. It's Jesus, he's saying. It's Jesus. And in Him, my friends, there is hope. He took on humanity, but not without an end in mind. He came on a mission to save sinners. That's what Paul says. Right? This is a, a true and faithful saying. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. The chief of sinners. My friends, Christ took on humanity, humanity to save men to save sinners. So this text tells us to behold the wondrous mercy and love of God, that He would come into this world in humiliation, made under the angels, suffer in the ways that we all suffer day by day, tempted and tried in the ways that we are, yet without sin, and then suffer greatly in going to the cross, going to the cross to shed His blood as an atonement for us. My friends, if you want to think about all the theology that you'll find in Hebrews, and there is a lot of deep theology here, we never want to lose sight of this. All this theology is not a distraction. It's an explanation. It's an explanation for how Christ did it. To a group of people that are like, I've heard all this and I recognize that God's doing something, but Judaism's a little safer. Just going to scoot away from Christ, go back to the synagogue, And, hey, it's the same God after all, isn't it? And the author of Hebrews says, my friends, if you turn your back on Jesus, there is no salvation. It's in Christ and Him alone. He alone is the one who could come and do this very work, and He can do it because of the very things we're talking about. If you strip Him of the incarnation, if you strip Him of the virgin birth, how could He do it? How could He be fully God and fully man? How could He be the perfect mediator? between God and man? How could He be the perfect sacrifice, fully God and yet, and therefore spotless and able to atone for sin perfectly, and yet as a human being able to die? Without it, He can't do this. And so my friends, as we walk through this book, this incredible book, and we see all these things of theology, don't lose sight of what that theology is in service to. It's in service to this very point. 
Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners.